shared. They said God has a purpose for you here. That's part of the spiritual gifts of the church is to hear what God is saying to the congregation. So write your name there at the top right. Jerry, would you run me a pen, please? I'll let her get me one. You had keep it. And I want you now then, as you do that, to go all the way to the back. And we have some notes back there. Thank you. And um, I want you to answer these three questions as we meditate. As we meditate on what God will do this weekend. Truth is, conference was set up for you to hear about the truth. But we don't want you to take our word for it. We want you to hear what God has to say. And we believe God can speak his truth to your heart. So I am not a Christian because somebody brainwashed me or made me believe in this. I am a Christian because I experienced this personally. Is anybody else an experiential believer here? Amen. It's not just I have a blind faith. I have experienced this. I know my wife loves me because I've experienced it. I know my parents love me because I've experienced it. I know God loves me because I've experienced it. I want you to write down these three questions on the back there where you got notes. And this is what I'm going to be doing as your host through these different sessions is I want to see God speak to your life in these three areas. Number one, do I have any doubts about my faith? And you're going to answer that here in a moment because we're going to meditate and we're going to be honest with ourselves and we're going to look inside of ourselves and we're going to see, do we have any doubts? Because if we have doubts, we want God to help us doubt our doubts this weekend. What makes doubts so powerful, what makes them so powerful is that they seem to go unchallenged and they hide in dark places. But we want to bring out our doubts and then doubt our doubts. We want to question these doubts and Figure out where they're coming from and why are they there to begin with. So you're going to be answering that. Do I have any doubts about Jesus, the Christian faith, the Bible? Number two. Everybody say number two. Do I have any personal objections to living for Jesus 100%? These aren't doubts. These are objections. Now, for many of you Christians here today, you may say, my life's fully surrendered, Pastor, and that's a good thing. So we're not going to ridicule you if you say your life's fully surrendered. We're going to believe you, and we're going to help you live it out. But you may be a non-Christian here, or you may be what we call a lukewarm Christian, and you have objections in your life, and they may not all be in a doubting sense. They may be also in a moral sense. You may object. Like, for example, you may be here and you might be sexually immoral, living with someone and you're not married with, and you may object to God's standard of righteousness. And, and you can tell that by your behavior because you keep doing it. Others of you may have arguments against God. Uh, you may have gone through something. Your parents might have abused you. I, I've, I've faced this a lot as a youth pastor. Youth will come to church. They'll say they love Jesus. But when it really comes to living for God 100%, they don't give it all because they blame God. Really, they blame God for what they went through in their past. See, I want you to admit that today. Some of you teenagers, even older people, you know, has there been a roadblock in you serving God as an objection? Like God says, I want you to forgive all your enemies. And you're like, I object. I can't forgive my parents. 
God says, I want you to stop sleeping with that person until you get married. I object. Or God says something maybe as basic as this. I want women to submit to their husbands in marriage. And you may say, I object. I don't want to submit to my husband. Okay? Just do you have personal objections? Number one, do you have any, any doubts? Number two, do you have any objections? And number three, what are the questions your friends have? The non-Christians in your life, what are they asking you? What is consistently coming up as a objection, as a doubt, as a rebuttal when you try to teach them about Jesus? So you have a co-worker, you have a family member, you, you have an old friend, somebody you love, and, and you say, hey, do you know Jesus? Have you been born again? Come to church with me. What do they say back to you? What questions do they say back to you? Do they say something like, well, why do I got to go to your church? I go to the Catholic church. Or I was baptized. Why do I need to do more? Or do they say things like to you, well, I'm a good person. I don't need that. What kind of objections and questions are people bringing to you? Because when we meditate here for the next maybe three to five minutes, I want you to write these out. Number one, what are my doubts? Number two, what are my personal objections to living sold out for God? And number three, what are the questions and objections that my friends, the people I love, have towards God? So you got those three questions written down? Because I want you to answer them this weekend. And I, I could probably say it better this way. I want God to give you the answers to them this weekend. I want God to take away the doubt where there's doubt. I want you and God to have a serious heart-to-heart -heart about those objections. One of the big ones I, I didn't mention, I'll mention now, uh, it's in the news, it's all over our culture, homosexual relationships. You may say, man, I, I just don't think there's anything wrong with that. I object to God calling that a sin. I want you and God to have a discussion this weekend. I want you to be honest, I want you to be real, I want you to go to the Word, I want you to talk to leaders, and I want that to be resolved. Amen? And then lastly, what are the questions and objections your friends have? Now quickly, turn with me to Psalms chapter 27, because I'm going to show you this is exactly the kind of relationship that David had with God. See, David kept it real. Do you ever feel like you get stuck in your prayers? You don't know what to say, you know, like the words don't come out right? Read the book of Psalms until something sticks in your heart and then pray David's prayers as your own. He will encourage you because he knew how to pray. He knew how to keep it real. Look at Psalm chapter 27. This is David talking. And just look in verse 1, and we'll put it up on the screen. We'll have these verses up here for you. Give you a few moments to get there. Psalm 27, verse 1. And as you're turning there, we don't want you to take our word for it. We want God to speak it to you. So we have put it on Facebook and told our friends to invite you here. And we're making time after every service to pray and to discuss these things. I've wrote a book on Islam. I've invited Muslims. I'm prepared to help a Muslim see Christ in, in, Jesus, in Christianity today. I'm prepared to help an atheist to see a creator. And so I'm even as, as far as I told my wife she could leave me here. I'll spend the night. I'll put out tables. We'll go to YouTube videos. We'll go to the Internet. We'll, we'll go to books. We'll go whatever it takes to resolve those issues today. And we're also going to pray. So it's going to be like simultaneous. Some of you, you're like, I believe. I just want to pray and hear it from God. Okay. Others of you, you may have questions. And so we're going to sit down and do that today. After every uh, session, you're going to have a chance to do that. Look at Psalm chapter 27 verse 1 
says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Andrew, are we going to get that up there for him? Because I want him to see it. How many know already Jesus is on your side? How many already know here there's nothing to be afraid of? Amen. But some need to get to that place. But if you're not there, you can get there. Now watch this, verse 2. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. So we believe in a strong foundation that when things come against us, we're going to keep standing. Is anybody here going to take a stand for righteousness today? It says, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Come on, anybody feel like they got an army against them today? Anybody feel like you're going through something? You might be like, man, we're going to be talking about religions and all this. Man, I just need Jesus to show up. You're going to get that today. You're going to get that this weekend. But you're going to get the knowledge to combat those enemies that come against you as well. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Now look at verse 4 as we get ready to meditate. One thing I asked from the Lord, this do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And that word seek there, to seek God in his temple, it literally means to inquire, to ask. Like the Bible says, seek and it shall be, you shall find. Knock and the door will be answered. Everybody say seek. You see, the Bible is saying here through David that we can come into God's presence and gaze upon his beauty through the beauty of his word, through those promises, through what he's done in the past, and through his presence in our lives. We can gaze upon the face of God and be changed. And then in that place of meeting with God, which we've already done in worship and we're going to do right now in meditation, you can inquire, you can seek him, and you will find him. He says, if you seek me, you will find me. If you ask, it will be given to you. If you knock, the door will be open. Who said those words? Jesus. You ever hear about Jesus? Jesus said, ask, and it's given. Knock, and the door is open. Seek, and you shall find. So I'm going to ask that we get a microphone here set up for Rachel. She's just going to sing in the spirit a little bit. And I want to set up our time of meditation so these questions can come from your heart, the answers rather to these questions. Father, I pray right now we'll just take off the mask and we'll be real with who we are right now. And that, God, you'll speak to our heart these hidden things, these things that we deal with. Lord, now as we meditate and seek your face and gaze upon your beauty would you give us the answers to these questions starting now as we write them out and through this weekend right now would you start to answer those questions as I, as I say amen to this come on just do that
minutes right now to meditate. Write out those questions, and maybe God will even start speaking to you right now. Let's do this for three minutes. Keep it to yourself. We'll share them at the end. But let's believe God to speak to us. more seconds these are the things we want to hear at the end of the conference that God did in your life for example I came here doubting if God really loved me or forgave me of my past but I want you at the end of the conference to be able to say hey you know what God spoke to me he told me I'm forgiven or you know what I've been having objections about whether or not this is a sin or whether or not this is true but now at the end of the conference I'm coming out with my faith strong you know what? I came here with questions from my friends. They always doubt, and they ask me these things, and I don't know how to answer them. But now after this conference, I know how to go back and give them the answer. Come on, 30 seconds. we got to write them down, to be honest. We're going to believe God to give us those things, because he said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of me, and it will be given to him. from our heart, these doubts, these objections, these things that people have said to us. And Lord, we lay them at your feet and we say, if you be God, then answer them this weekend. If your word is true, then speak it to our hearts because God, we believe that you can. You said if we'll have just the the faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, just a little seed, we could move mountains in your name. And Lord, I've already seen you answer these kinds of questions in my heart and in my life. God, these are the things that my foundation has been built on. And I know you'll build that foundation in others' lives. I know you're faithful. You're not a man that you should lie. 
You speak words of truth like no other. You give us the answers to the meaning of life itself. You heal the brokenhearted. You will guide us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. And I declare that is what you will do this weekend. In Jesus' name. And can everybody say amen and give them a hand clap of praise. Amen. First session now is with Pastor Jared, grounded in Jesus. Would you give it up for Jared Walker? Welcome to the Truth Is Conference. Uh, Pastor Jared here, one of the MPI staff uh, people. I am very honored and humbled and nervous to be preaching the opening message. Now, before we really start this conference, I want to lay down some ground rules. The first is this. You cannot speak over the preacher unless you're saying amen. Then the se- <laughs> That man, Yes. He won the Amen Olympics gold medal there, Brother Ish, yes. Thank you. Okay, the second rule is there are no rules. I kid, I kid. But what, I, what do I mean by that? I mean, let's take the gloves off. Let's, let's be real here, okay? How many non-Christians are here in the building today? No shame, no shame. Anybody non-Christian, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm, I'm not with this stuff. There you are. Oh, she put, <laughs> she put you on the spot there. Sorry, but Okay, so we're all believers in Jesus. But here's the thing. No matter where you're coming at, let's, let's just be real up front. We love Jesus, and we love you, and we want you to love Jesus. And we want you to go to heaven and not to hell. And we believe that Jesus is the one who will save you from hell and take you to heaven. Amen? And so he's the only way. We believe that. You should have known that. You walked into a church. You know, oh, I came for the coffee. No, you came for truth. And you see, people are afraid to talk about truth in this day and age. They're afraid to have frank discussions about the things they really believe. So we just put on this face. We don't want to talk about it. You know what they say? Uh, no religion and politics at the dinner table. Ever heard that saying? As if to say, oh, we don't want to offend people. We don't want to seem rude. We don't want to seem pushy. We don't want to seem mean. But why should we not be able to talk about truth and the things that are dearest to us? If you ask me not to talk about Jesus, you're asking me not to talk about the most important person in my life. Why should I be silent about him? And if I believe Jesus is the only way, why would it be rude for me to tell you about him? It would be neglectful for me not to tell you about him. And I've asked if there's unbelievers. Apparently there's no non-Christians here. But let's say there was a Muslim. Listen, a Muslim thinks I blaspheme by worshiping Jesus as God. You feel me? So if I'm intolerant, I'm not the only intolerant one. Why? Because if Jesus is true, Muhammad is false. Amen? And if God is the creator, atheism is false and so on. It's just what we believe deep down. So let's take the gloves off. We're going to have a lot of discussions about the things we really believe. We're going to be honest with each other. Amen? And so we're going to be real up front here. I want to ask you some opening questions. Just some things to really get you thinking. Uh, Pastor Joe did present some questions, but I want to uh, present some more just to get your mind stirring. The first is this. Do you want to follow the truth wherever it may be found? In other words, it would be like to say, if the truth is in Buddhism, I'll be a Buddhist. You know what I'm saying? If the truth is in atheism, I'll be an atheist. If the truth is in Jesus Christ, I'm a Christian. Because I want the truth, amen? 
Now, the opposite of that would be to say, I'm closed-minded. Like, I want to follow the truth, but uh, I heard that Christians hate gay people, so Christianity can't not possibly be true. Everybody with me? That's, that's just an example. And so do you want the truth wherever it may be found, even if it's a truth that it's not politically correct or a truth that you didn't like or a truth that's a little bit offensive to you? As Pastor Joe mentioned, what are some objections you might have? You might object to the truth. You might not like the truth. It might not line up with your values. When I was uh, first uh, a young Christian, I'd been saved about three months at this point, and I was going to Wright College, and one of my classmates was a, was a Muslim, I would bring my Bible to school and I'd read it between breaks and, you know, I'd be Bible boy, you know, I'd be that guy. And um, he saw that I was carrying a Bible and he began to talk to me about Islam and he began to, with using my own Bible, to try to persuade me that Islam was the truth. And he was very persuasive and uh, I was to the point where I bought a Quran and I said the Shahada which is the Muslim confession of faith. There is no God but Allah, and, uh, and uh, Muhammad is his messenger. I said that in, in my room because, you know what? I just wanted the truth. You know what I'm saying? And I was becoming convinced that oh, but through this guy that Islam was true. Obviously, I'm not a Muslim today, and I'm not convinced of that. One, one thing that Pastor Joe shared at that time when I was in that valley of decision was, listen, the whole Islam-Christianity debate's been going on for 1,500 years. That's a lot, right? It's a lot of time. There's been a lot of arguments, and there's been a lot of card arguments, and I'm just, a, I'm just a newbie Christian. I got my feet wet, and this guy kind of spanked me a little bit. It's like, okay, now get back on the gospel pony, all right? Just because, just because this guy schooled you doesn't mean the truth is not with Jesus. It just means you didn't know enough. You know what I'm saying? And so are you willing to follow the truth wherever it may be found? That was my heart. It's like, okay, if, uh, I didn't want to be a Muslim, but if the truth is in Islam, I'll be a Muslim. But uh, I'm quite convinced the truth is in Jesus. Are you willing to follow the truth wherever it may be found? The second thing is, where do you get truth? I notice in this day and age, a lot of people are skeptical of what they call organized religion. And they're skeptical of preachers like me telling them what to do, telling them what to think, telling them what to believe. You know what I'm saying? They're skeptical of those folks. They're naturally mistrusting of preachers, and yet who's preaching to them? Musicians, TV show hosts, bloggers, hello? And they're telling them what to think, and they're telling them what to believe, and they're telling them what to do. You know, before I was saved, I wasn't saved. And before I was saved, I was agnostic. And you know why I was agnostic? Because I heard the word agnostic in a movie. I did. I was just young, impressionable. I didn't really give a lot of thought to my ways. And I just let TV and movies and media and, 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 and rappers and everybody tell me my worldview and tell me how to live and tell me what to value and so on. Where do you get truth? See, I get truth from the Bible. I get truth with uh, uh, deliberately, on purpose. Some of you get truth accidentally. People are throwing their news and views, and you just kind of take it. You take it. You take it. You don't realize, but they're preaching to you. They're implanting ideas in your mind and you believe them yet you're skeptical of preachers like me at least I'm honest I want you to convert amen I want you to love Jesus with all your heart soul mind and strength and you know why because Jesus is amazing Jesus changed my life it's not just all oh, my religions better than yours It's that Jesus is a savior he's a living savior and he changes our hearts and he makes us new and he blesses us more than we could possibly imagine I want you to know that blessing and I'm honest about it Unlike some folks, you know, subliminal messages and, and all that stuff, all right? So where do you get truth? 
You need to be deliberate about where you get truth. Second, uh, third question, how do you know what you believe is true? Some people have their beliefs, but they never question them. They never question. They never really think about it. They never weigh, weigh their beliefs. They never, you know, see, see if it's true or not. They just assume, well, it's got to be true. I heard it on the Internet, you know, or, or they heard it from somewhere. This is what my family always believed, and, you know, this is just my culture. And they just, they just you know, drink down whatever, whatever is given to them. They don't question it. How do you know what you believe is true? Have you ever really thought it through? Have you really searched? Have you really sought out the evidence? Uh, fourth question, if you believed something that was not true, wouldn't you want to know it? See, truth is important. I resent that people would say it's rude and pushy to talk about what you believe because these things are important. Truth is of utmost importance. And it wouldn't be rude for me to tell a Muslim, listen, I think you're wrong. And I think you need Jesus. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be pushy or rude or mean for me to tell an atheist. And if they think I'm wrong, hey, tell me. Don't be fake about it. You know what I'm saying? I think you're a hellbound sinner, you know, and you think I'm a regressive, uh, bigoted, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm taking us back to the dark ages. Let's be real. Let's take the gloves off. And we're doing it in love because we're not hurting people over our beliefs. We're not hurting people over our beliefs, but we're discussing our beliefs. Everybody with me here? And so I can love you. I can serve you. I could be a blessing to you, but I'm also going to be honest with you. Amen? And so that's what we want to do this weekend, and I want to encourage uh, everyone here who is a Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, have those pushy conversations. Amen? Have those mean conversations, all right? Ruffle somebody's feathers because this whole religion, no religion, politics, nonsense has got to go. Amen. So we're just, we're just going to be open and honest this weekend. Obviously, we're speaking, and then you will have Q&A times, and you'll have plenty of time for personal conversations. Lay it all on us, man. We're not afraid. Amen. Because the truth will hold up to all scrutiny. So I want to tell you what I believe. The truth is... Facts corresponding to God's created order and his revelation in scripture. As I said, I'm very intentional about where I get truth. I believe that God's truth is found in the Bible. And then I believe that the world around us gives evidence. It gives signs that point me to God, that point to a brilliant and intelligent uh, and, and communicative creator God. And so this is what we're going with this weekend, that truth is found in the Bible. Amen. And that truth can also be alluded to in the created order of things. I want to give you all, uh, as truth seekers, do I have any truth seekers? You want the truth wherever it may be found. I want to give you some guiding principles to help you discern truth from non-truth. First, there are two kinds of truth. This goes back to the, to the Greek philosophers, and they would argue about universals and particulars. The universals are universal, immutable concepts that govern reality. Particulars are physical things of the world around us that point to reality. So it's like this truth dichotomy. Plato would teach that truth is found in universals, Aristotle in the particulars. And, and the only way I could really explain it well is to place it in the form of some questions. I'll say this, like the universals... They answer the major existential questions of life, such as, is there a God? Who am I? How did I get here? What is the meaning of life, etc.? Because everything else rides on those questions. Those are important questions, 
And so they are universal. They're true for all people at all times, and they're immutable. means they're not changing. These universal truths govern reality. Uh, and then it takes us to the particulars. So I don't see it as either or. I see it as both in. I see universals and particulars. Here's how. Particulars also answer questions, but they answer questions about how we live and about how the world works, such as how should I treat my fellow man? How can I know right and wrong? How should I view family, love, sex, etc.? How can I conduct science? What is a proper form of government? The way that we answer the universal questions helps us determine how we answer the particular questions. For instance, is there a God? Depending on how you answer the question, is there a God, whether you answer yes or no, let's say you answer yes. If you answer yes, there is a God, let's go to the question, how can I know right and wrong? Well, God would reveal right and wrong, would he not? But if I answer no, there is no God, then it's really up to me to determine right and wrong. Everybody with me here? So the, the way that you answer the universals affects how you deal with the particulars. And so you, you could take this, who am I? What is it, meaning, what is a human being? That's, that's the question at hand. What is a human being? And the way you answer that question, who am I, affects the, the, the answer to the question, how should I treat other people? You know what I'm saying? It gives you... Uh, a basis for how you live and how you act within the world. So universals take us to those particulars. And that is, a, and we're going to um, base that, uh, we're going to use that as a basis rather, I'm sorry, we're going to use this as a basis for judging truth now. Because the way, uh, I'm going to give you two truisms for truth. We had two kinds of truth, two truisms of truth. These this is, these are just nuggets of wisdom, of advice to help you discern truth based on the universals and the particulars. Number one, the worldview or religion you follow ought to have the most rational, consistent, and satisfying answers to life's questions. Amen? So we're looking at those universals, right? And whatever you believe, you're Christian, you're Jehovah Witness, you're a Mormon, you're Muslim, whatever you are, it you need to look at your beliefs and say, does this have good answers for these questions? Do the answers make sense? Rational, what I mean by rational is are they uh, supported by logic? Are they supported by evidence? Because if you believe something and there's no evidence for it and it gets refuted time and time again, you're going to say to yourself, why do I believe this if it's proving to be untrue? How about this, consistent? And I would say that your belief system should be consistent with the world we live in. Amen? It should be consistent at least with the world we live in or the world the way it ought to be. And, and then it should be satisfying. C.S. Lewis spoke of a, a hunger in each soul that points us to something, uh, a hunger for something which nothing in this world can satisfy. Does your belief system leave you empty or does it satisfy your soul? And for some folks, they say, I'm satisfied. I don't believe Christianity, but I'm satisfied. But they're satisfied by anything but their beliefs. I'm actually satisfied. Religion, you know, we think of religion as this boring, stuffy thing, you know. But Jesus satisfies my soul. Jesus is the joy of my life. Jesus is the light of my life. My belief system satisfies me. Does yours? It should be rational, consistent, and satisfying. And then what you believe with regard to the universals should determine the way you live, how you deal with the particulars. How many think that if you profess to follow Christ, you should live like a Christian? You should, yes, we got a lot of amens there. We should keep his commandments, amen. We should live holy. We should 
We should love God and love people. We should do what Jesus did, live the way Jesus lived. And when Christians say that, or, or, or someone professes to believe in Christ, but they don't live like that, what do we call them? We call them hypocrites. But I want to turn the tables. Now, if you profess to believe in atheism or evolutionary theory, and you don't live as if atheism were true, all right, and we're going to test that out in a few minutes. You have to borrow Jesus' sayings to love your neighbor because science has not given you that answer, is it? Or, wh or whatever. It has to be consistent. It has to be livable. There was a fellow by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre, and he was a French existentialist, and that's a, a worldview we're not going to discuss tonight. But he said at the end of his life, he preached such a strange philosophy of life, and at the end of his life he said, my philosophy was unlivable. I couldn't actually live out what I believed. It was impossible because life doesn't actually match up with what I believe. Everybody with me here? So what you believe should determine the way you live, but does it? You see, I find that my belief in Jesus does match with the world. It does match with the way I live. It does match with the world as the way it ought to be, that I love God and love others. Isn't that what we normally expect, that a world of love and compassion and justice and mercy and so on? I mean, does anybody look at the news like Syria? You know, oh, Syria's using chemical weapons on its own people. That's, a, that's, that's good news. That's an answer to prayer. Who's saying that? No one's saying that. No, we want a world of love and justice and compassion. But does your belief system pr produce love, justice, and compassion? Because it's if, if it's not conducive to it, it's probably contrary to it. And if your belief system doesn't even match up with the way you should live or the world the way it ought to be, why do you believe it? It's clearly inconsistent with the truth. So we have two kinds of truth, the universals, the great questions of life, and then we have the particulars. I want to test this out now. I'm going to use Charles Darwin as my guinea pig. Now, I am very grateful to pass the burden to Pastor Joe. Tomorrow, session three, stick around. He's going to go one by one through almost all of the different religions and worldviews. He's going to go through it, and, and I'm glad because that's, that's a lot of ground to cover. But if I could just focus on one tonight, I'm going to focus on Darwin. What did Darwin teach? Evolution. We're going to focus on evolution. We're going to take it through that test. We're going to see how it answers life's questions. Amen? And, and we're going to see how consistent it is. And you could do this with anything you believe. If you were a Hindu, you could ask Krishna, hey, Krishna, who is God? If you were a Muslim, Muhammad, what is the meaning of life? And not just answer, asking the questions, but weighing the answers. Because people can be very gullible, people susceptible. People often believe lies because they don't stop to think about the lies they're being told. You know what I'm saying? So you should be asking your worldview questions. Ask, ask them questions. Ask Muhammad the questions. Ask Darwin the questions. And then say, wait, do these answers they're giving me actually make sense? Are they rational? Are they consistent? Are they satisfying? Does it match up with the world I live in and the way I should be living? Everybody with me here? And you could do that really with anything you choose to believe, but we're going to focus on, uh, on Charles Darwin right now. Say, Charles, is there a God? And this is what a representative of evolution or Richard Dawkins or some scientist may tell me. No, there is no God. Science has disproven God or at the very least removed the need for God. See, they cannot really say they've disproved God. Some will actually go so far as to say that, but they can never really disprove God. 
Well, th th what they will say is that science has removed the need for God. You know, Zeus used to explain lightning bolts, and now science has figured out lightning bolts. And, and we used to do all these crazy rituals to heal people, but now medicine heals people. And so they think of God as a God of the gaps. And they accuse us of believing a God of the gaps, which is really this intellectual cop-out that, that says, you know, we're just going to believe something to explain what we can't explain, what science can't explain. And so Darwin would tell you, well, there's no need for God. At the very least, you can live your life fine without God. The world can run fine without God. Who am I? What is a human being? You are an organic machine whose chief function is to make copies of your genetic material. Doesn't that just warm your heart? <laughs> you may think I'm ridiculing evolution. This is what they teach. This is what they teach. Okay, you are a, an organic machine, and your chief function is to reproduce your ma organic material. Now, some, animal, uh, some life forms like amoeba, you know, they like, they like split off, and some of those forms of life, they have different ways of reproducing. Humans reproduce through sex, okay? So I think for the atheist, it's like you are an organic machine, and, and your chief function is copulate and populate. Now, they got one part of Genesis right, be fruitful and multiply. I wish they'd get the rest of Genesis right. But that, that's what life is all about. You are a machine. Now, here's something to think about. If, if we think of people in terms of machines, well, we, we throw out broken machines, and we throw out machines we don't like. You know, you get the new, the new smartphone, you throw out the old smartphone or trade it in. And... Listen, I work at a, at a Christian uh, drug program, Teen Challenge. And if we think in those terms, then it's really a place full of broken machines. Shouldn't we just put them out? Are you with me? Or when somebody's old and senile, broken machine. Somebody has an extra chromosome and they have downs, broken machine. Machines. You are a machine that is meant to copulate and populate. How did I get here? That question is really, what is the origin, and how did we get here, and why is the world the way it is? What, ha what say you, Darwin? You are the product of natural selection. That is an endless cycle of stronger organisms outliving and oftentimes killing weaker ones in order to propagate and evolve. Then that just gets you up in the morning. <laughs> Again, I'm not trying to ridicule this. This is a... a from my research, this is an accurate representation of an evolutionary worldview. And some folks will even be so honest as to say, yes, this is miserable. This is no way to live. And if, and if you don't like it, take a sleeping pill or an antidepressant. Because this is life. But how many know we don't live like that? People don't live like that. I mean, what, why do we have charities? Why do we have the Red Cross if it's all about just surviving and killing off the weaker things and, and spreading our genes? You know, why do you have a museum? Why do you have a university? Why do we have churches if that's all life is? Clearly, there's more to it that evolution cannot explain. What is the meaning of life? Everything you do is actually an effort to efficiently pass on your genetic material. Wow. Copulate and populate. That's the meaning of life. Why have marriage then? You know what I'm saying? 
Why, why do anything the way we do it? This does not match up with the world the way it ought to be. Richard Dawkins, who's a very famous atheist, he's, his, he has a reputation of being called Darwin's Rottweiler. He's Charles Darwin's attack dog, so if anyone disagrees with evolution, he's on the attack to, to kind of slam them to the ground, you know. And he wrote a book called The Selfish Gene in 1976, and it's a very popular book to this day because it is the best explanation atheists have as to how evolution can produce compassion and mercy and altruism. Because from all appearances, evolution would not produce compassion and mercy. It would, it would just be survival of the fittest, you know. It's all about me, looking out for number one, getting mine in, right? And, and he tries to explain it, and, and I don't have time to go through his whole book, but here's my critiques for it. Uh, his, his whole premise is that you are a host. It just gets even better, doesn't it? You are a host. You are like this mechanical body, and your genes control you. And your genes are controlling your host, your body, yourself, in such a way so that they can spread themselves and reproduce themselves. And he goes throughout the book to, to try to say that, uh, that in an effort to spread your genes, you may at times do things that appear uh, as having compassion, love for your weaker beings, and so on. Uh, my critique is, number one, it's too simplistic. It reduces human beings to breeding animals. That's all we are is breeding animals. It doesn't explain why we are in awe. Anybody enjoy a sunset? Maybe that's just me. I like the sunsets. Anybody ever maybe go to Niagara Falls or they've seen the ocean and they're just in awe of that? I mean, why do we have awe of those things if all we're here to do is copulate and populate? Why do we have museums? Why do we have artwork? Why do we, why do we dream? It has no explanation for those things. Number two, there are more efficient ways to reproduce our genes. You don't want to know what those ways are. I'll just leave it at that. There, there, you, there's, if that's all there is, then, then we could be doing things differently. Why have one wife? Why not have a harem of women? Why not have a farm? We should just all live on farms. You know what I'm saying? And farm ourselves and farm each other like livestock. Because that's really the only sort of social construct fit for evolved humans. How about this? Number three, it's an illusion. At best, even Dawkins admits this, is that even if this is right, it's still an illusion. The love you have for your parents, the compassion you may feel for a homeless person or, or you know, when you see those commercials for, for, for kids in, in hurting parts of the world, he says it's all an illusion. It's all illusory. Wow, I do need an antidepressant. So am I picking on science? No. I love science. We as Christians embrace science. But I have a problem with bad science. And I have a problem with science that tries to go against the word of God. And so I'm, I'm taking time with Darwin here because evolution tends to be the default position for those that think all of the answers to life's questions can be found through science and human reason. And I have a few responses to that. This brings us to two revelations of truth. We as Christians, this is a common teaching, a common understanding of how God speaks to, to the human race. The first is through general revelation. And with general revelation, I say this, faith and science are not incompatible. Amen? Faith and reason are not incompatible. They actually 
go together quite well. Science has flourished in the Christian worldview. In the 17th century, there was the scientific revolution. This was when the gears started turning and science made a lot of forward motions to where we are today in terms of discoveries. This is when we began to discover that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. And this is when we began to just have breakthroughs in, in cosmology and the way that we view the world. And men like uh, Johannes Kepler and Isaac Newton were God-fearing and Bible-believing men. Galileo was, was a cleric, and these men were God-fears, and, and they revolutionized science. And you know why they rev revolutionized science? Because they saw that the world was rational and intelligible, that the world had order, that the world made sense. Are you with me? And that there was a creator who had messages in the created order that they could comprehend with the intelligent minds he gave them. And so science flourished within the Christian worldview. And, and, and there's a few uh, scriptures that we could look to. Psalm 19, verse 1, tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. The heavens declare. The heavens speak. The universe speaks. The universe tells us about God. It tells us about our Creator. Romans 1.20 for since the creation of the world's uh, of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. God's invisible qualities, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. And then Ecclesiastes, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Is it any wonder, as one skeptical philosopher, Voltaire, said, he said mankind is incurably religious. This was an unbeliever. He acknowledged that from the beginning of time, people have been worshiping some form of God. They've been searching for something above and beyond what this world can offer. And so we see it in... Um, in the sciences, we can see evidence of a brilliant God. Amen? And in human behavior, listen, good psychology, I'm not against psychology because good psychology would reflect that when you keep God's commandments and when you do things God's way, you are the most psychologically, emotionally well person. Amen? So everything in the world. And so this kind of opens up all the studies for us. Science, biology, cosmology, psychology, all of the ologies. And a, and a Christian, someone who believes that God designed it and God put it there and God has an order and God has a purpose for it can, can examine those things and study those things and get the most fruitful results from it. Just like Kepler, just like Galileo, just like uh, uh, Isaac Newton and so many others. And so faith and science are not incompatible. Faith and reason are not incompatible. But the second thing is special revelation is, is that which God has revealed through the Bible. You see, there are things that science cannot touch with a 10-foot pole. There, I, I, I tried to demonstrate how unsatisfying and unlivable are the answers that evolution provides to the things of our lives. Because you cannot make philosophical statements from science. For instance, to even say that all truth 
can be found through sciences cannot be scientifically proven. Anybody know the scientifically scientific method? You cannot take that to a lab and prove it. That is a philosophical statement. So even that in itself is self-defeating. There are things, and, and I'm grateful once again for the discoveries, for the medicine, for the technology, and so on of scientists. But, but for those who arrogantly think they don't need God, they need to step aside and let the theologians do their work. Special revelation. Special revelation is the Bible. We believe that God speaks. We believe that God is an intentional communicator and that there are certain things that he wanted us to know. Amen? And we couldn't just get them by observing the stars or, or other things. There are things that very specific and direct things that God wanted us all to know. And so he gave us the Bible. The Bible was written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 authors on three different continents and three different languages. It was compiled over that amount of time 2,000 years ago. It is a work of pre-modern, pre-scientific ancient people, but it was inspired by Almighty God. As 2 Timothy tells us, 3, 15 through 17, it says, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I just want to say this. We don't knock an English book because it doesn't teach math. And we don't knock a math book because it doesn't teach history. See, the Bible... It, it makes some scientific claims, but it's not a science book. There's a lot of history, but it's not a history book. The Bible is a book that tells us something that none of those other books can tell us. It tells us about the very heart of God, about the very heart of our Creator and His will for each of us. It gives us the particulars of how we ought to live where science fails miserably. And so we see in, in general revelation, that is the universe, the way that it is, the way that it's designed, the way that it appears that life, uh, it, it was catered to make life possible here for us. And then the special revelation where God reveals his heart to us. It says it was inspired. God breathed on it and it's been preserved for us. And, uh, and there's just ways that science falls short. But I want to tell you all there is a book. I don't know if you remember the Ken Ham and Bill Nye debate last month. And, you know, Bill Nye just did not have answers consistent with what I've been saying. He had no answers for the deep questions of life because science cannot touch them. And what was Ken Ham telling him? There is a book. There is a book. There is a book. And governments have tried to ban this book and burn this book. And wise men have tried to refute this book. And false teachers have tried to pervert this book and turn its truth into lies. But for over 2,000 years, it's been preserved. It's been faithfully carried out. It's been changing lives all over the world. There is a book that tells us what our human reason and what the world around us can never tell us. It tells us about the very heart of God. It tells us how we ought to live. It gives us the meaning of life where everything else falls short and it does not give satisfactory answers. There is a book. Having looked at that book, I want to explore God's answers. 
Let's look at God's answers to the deep questions of life. We derive this from the scriptures. Number one, is there a God? Amen. Yes, there is a God. Hallelujah. And, and not only is, it a God, is there a God, but this God is revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so these three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Now, I could go a, a long way trying to explain the Trinity, but I'll just say this. There's one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Is that mind-bottling? That's what the Bible teaches, okay? So, so we don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God and three persons. These three persons are co-equal, co-eternal. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father and so on. They are not each other, but they are all equally and fully God. That is the teaching of the Bible. But here's why that's important. I mean, oh, isn't it enough to believe in one God? Well, not necessarily. Here's why this is important. How many of you here have heard of the term unity in diversity? Unity in diversity. This is a very important term. Actual nations have adopted this, this term as its motto, unity in diversity. In two, the year 2000, the European Union made their motto, unity in diversity. And what that seeks to do is find unity among the diversity of people, all the different cultures, all the different languages, all the different religions. They're trying to find a way to get all the different people to come together and have peace, right? And what we find is that before long, there's always a schism. There's always a power struggle. There's always jealousy. There's always racism. There's always some sort of class warfare. There's always the, the strong over the weak, the rich over the poor, and so on and so on. And it doesn't seem that unity and diversity is possible, but we're all seeking it. We're all seeking a way to get all these people to get along together and stay together. In fact, the word university comes from unity and diversity. So you go to, you know, like U of I down in Champaign, and they have 40,000 students. And the idea of a, any university is to get all these different minds together on the same page from all over the world, all these different backgrounds. And we're all seeking that. And we all want that, but we can't maintain that. But in the Trinity, we have three co-equal, co-eternal people who have loved each other in eternity's past and will continue to love each other and be united in eternity's future. And there's never going to be a power struggle. They're never going to break up. They're never going to, you know, like the Holy Spirit's like, I'm out of this, man. I'm not getting enough attention. You know, it's not about me. Or Jesus dates Yoko Ono, you know what I'm saying? It's like there's not going to break up, man. There's unity and diversity in the Trinity. And it's what we all seek and it's what we all long for because we are made in the very image of God. And just another caveat, the church, I believe, models best uh, unity and diversity. From the very earliest days, from the very earliest days of the church, it was established that we would all be many members of one body. We would all be different people from different backgrounds, but one body. Galatians 3, 26 through 28 says it like this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed your, clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, Male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? 
how Jesus' vision, his heart for the church, was there would be no racial distinctions, no gender distinctions, no class distinctions. A slave and a slave master could sit in the same row at church. There's no VIP section. Are you with me? For the top ten tithers. There's no, you know what I'm saying? There's, we, you know, you may go out in the world and people will judge you by all of these superficial standards, by where you grew up, by the way you talk, by the color of your skin, and so on. But in the church, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And some folks, they, they wrongly think of Christianity as a white man's religion. Now, Jesus was darker than me, Adam, but he was also lighter than you. Come on. And he was from that part of the world where Africa and Europe and Asia all touched, you know, Judea, Palestine, what have you. He was from that part of the world. And in, in, in the earliest in, in the earliest Christian church, it flourished in Egypt, it flourished in what's modern-day Turkey, it flourished in Greece and Rome, it flourished in Jerusalem, and then it went to Western Europe in the course of time to Germany and France and these places. You know, uh, uh, we just did St. Patrick's Day. He exported it to Ireland, and then it went over to America with the pilgrims, and then while that was going on, you know, the Catholics, they probably weren't doing it the right way, but they were spreading it to these other places through subjugation. But to say Christianity is a white man's religion is pure nonsense. Tell that to our pastor friends in Pakistan. Christianity is the most inclusive and consistent organization for over 2,000 years. All these different cultures, all these different languages have been one in Jesus. And that's a far cry from an Islam because everywhere you go in Islam, you have to dress like an Arab and speak the Arabic language. Even if that's not your native language, you have to learn that because they try to force everyone. That's not unity. That's not unity to try to force everyone to be in the same mold. But he says you are many members of one body. And you, you're yourself. You're your culture. You're your language. You're the places you grew up. But you're one in Jesus. And so there are deep answers even in the very character of God. Unity and diversity found in the triune God. So is there a God? Yes, there is a God. He's a triune God. Who am I? What is a human being? What is a human being? I am, a, uh, I am a human being, a rational, moral, spiritual creature made in the image and likeness of God. I have inherent worth and value as the crown jewel of God's creation. Amen. At the same time, I have fallen from God's standards. I am spiritually unenlightened and capable of great moral evil. I'm going to break that down in two ways. The first is that we are made in the image of God with inherent worth and value. That is what the framers, framers of our Constitution said, did they not? That we all are endowed with inalienable rights created equal in the image of our Creator. And so we made laws as such to give people those freedoms and opportunities. And, and, and don't we like it that way? Or, or would we rather have a government where certain types of people were subjugated, certain types of people were denied freedoms? That wouldn't work, right? So we believe that not only are you made in the image of God, but so is the person next to you. And the Bible calls that person your neighbor. And the Bible says love your neighbor as you love yourself because you're both er bearers of the image of God. So that's the first thing. So again, Darwin tells us we're, that, that the person next to you is a machine. God tells you that's your neighbor. Amen. But at the same time, we're fallen from God's standards we're spiritually unenlightened, and this would explain why there's so many religions and there's so much confusion, there's so much stuff going on, and we're capable of great moral evil. Does that not describe the human condition? That we can be capable of 
wonderful things, wonderful acts of, of courage and love and compassion and so on, but we're also capable of, of horrible things like, like Newtown and among other things. We're capable of horrible things, and, and most of us, we're just morally inconsistent. Like we try to do the right thing, but we just don't do the right thing. You see, God has your number. God knows who you are. And this is important because some people think, well, I'm God. Anybody ever heard that? I'm God. You're God. All is God. God is all. That's pantheism. That's an errant view of human beings. You are not God. If you're God, you stink at being God. Or some people think that the, the nature of persons are basically good, you know, and, and, but we just, we just don't see that. They mean, it would be just a flat denial of all the wicked stuff that goes on in the world. So we have inherent worth and value, and in the image of our Creator, we seek unity and diversity. In the image of our Creator, we seek love, compassion, relationships, and justice in the world. But a lot of the time, we're just morally inconsistent at best and horribly evil at worst. God understands who we are. God made us. Next question, how did we get here? Again, this is the question of origin. This is the question of why is the world the way it is? And God's answer is that a complex, beautiful, and intelligible universe populated with conscious beings, such as humans, was created and designed by an intelligent, communicative God. And this alludes to what I began to talk about, that the scientific revolution that happened in the 17th century with fellows like Kepler and these others, they did it on the basis that the universe was intelligible. They did it on the basis of their Christian worldview that this world made sense and we could make sense of it with the minds God gave us. So uh, the scripture once again bears witness. How did we get here? God made it. Science once again has no answer. They say, well, these, these laws, these natural laws explain it, but they can't tell us where the natural laws come from. What is the meaning of life? To know, love, and obey God. I guess there's a lot of ways I could have answered that as I prepared my notes. It all involves God. Love God, worship God, praise God, however you want to say it. But know, love, and obey God. And the natural result of which is a fruitful life of loving others and doing good works. Jesus said it like this. He says, the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, you can't have the second commandment without the first commandment. There was someone I know and deeply love, and, and, and they're an unbeliever, and they once wrote uh, some poetry, and at the end of their poem, it was kind of like a jab at God saying, I don't need your permission to love my neighbor. But friend, when we don't love God, our neighbor becomes a machine, and we have a distorted view of our neighbor, and we have just these, these off views. Do you need God's permission to love your neighbor? Maybe you, you certainly need God's wisdom. You need God's light to love your neighbor. You don't need God's permission because God already commands you. But you need the light of God in your heart. You need to see the image of God in your neighbor to love them. And then he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So in other words, if you just get these two things right, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself, everything else is going to fall into place. So when we love God, we're fulfilling the purpose of our life. The natural byproduct is we love our neighbors. We have rich, loving, blessed relationships with, with the people around us. And we have fruitful lives of good works. Amen. Now, there are things that 
science once again can't tell us. I just want to put this in perspective just a little more here and drive this home. Was Martin Luther King a minister or a scientist? He was a minister. Do you know why? Let's go back to that slide on special revelation. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Or all scripture is inspired. That's another synonym for God-breathed. But that's the literal word there, God-breathed. And I believe that the inspired scriptures inspired Martin Luther. And he recognized that all people are made in God's image. And that it's a sin to oppress your neighbor. And the, and the scriptures inspired him to stand up and, and fight for justice in the world. The folks that abolished slavery, both in the United States and in Britain, were primarily Christians. We often credit Abe Lincoln. He just signed the 13th Amendment. But who was there fighting that fight for, for years and years and years? It was Christian abolitionists because they were convinced this was sin. And my neighbor may have a different color of skin, but that's my neighbor. And they're made in the image of God just like I'm made in the image of God. It inspired them to fight the good fight, to fight for justice in the world. See, there's things that science couldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. Who's out there fighting human trafficking? A lot of Christians are doing that. They're the Christians that are digging wells in Africa. Why? It's compassion for your fellow man. Let the weaker machines die off, right? And human trafficking, if we do that a little differently, that could easily be a way to copulate and populate. Hello? You see, the Bible tells you things. That, that you can't get anywhere else in this whole world. And there's one special thing that it tells you that nothing else can tell you, and it's the thing you need to know the most. I want you to think of the Bible as a treasure map. And how do you know a treasure map is reliable? It takes you to the treasure. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, You have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I want to talk to you for a minute about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth 2,000 years ago. Every respectable historian believes that. He lived in Judea. He had a ministry. He was reputed as a miracle worker. He had a following. People believed he was the Messiah, and he was crucified. What happens after the crucifixion, people tend to disagree about because there's a there's a weighty implication to that. But everyone knows Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. He wasn't like a myth, like a Hercules or something. He was, he was in history. Pilate, Pontius Pilate was a real person. Herod, the Herodian dynasty, real people. John the Baptist, real, historically verifiable. Jesus was a person of history. And the Bible gives us the best account of who he was and what he did. It was the closest in time. The entire New Testament was written between 60 and 70 years of Jesus' death. Jesus was crucified about 30 A.D. The last of the New Testament was either 90 to 100 A.D. with the Apostle John, within 60 to 70 years. And then it was not only closest in time, but closest in relationship. It was closest in relationship because the very people that wrote the New Testament were the friends of Jesus. James and Jude who wrote books of the Bible, were his half-brothers. Matthew and John were his disciples. They were eyewitnesses of the things Jesus did, and their ears heard the very words Jesus said. And then you have others like Luke and Paul, but they were affirmed by the friends and family of Jesus. 
So if anyone could say Paul was a charlatan, Paul is twisting this up, Paul is inventing a Jesus myth, it would be them. But we, we understand that they were affirmed in preaching Jesus the way they did. And so what we have in the New Testament is the best account. And not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament. Because Paul was speaking to Timothy about the Holy Scriptures. Paul was raised by a Jewish mom, and so she would read him the Old Testament, Moses, the Psalms of David, and the prophets, and so on. And so those were the scriptures he was actually referring to. Old Testament predicts Jesus. There's numerous prophecies that tell of his coming. Virtually everything in the Bible points us to the Lord Jesus. It takes us to the treasure, as it were. And, it, and through Jesus, there's a rich relationship with God. I want to ask you the, the ultimate universal question. Who is Jesus? The man who split the calendar from B.C. to A.D. The man who's been inspiring people all over the world. And, he, he, you know, he, he's, he's sent out so many people. And he's, he wasn't a military leader. He never even wrote a book. You know? He, he wasn't. You know, he, he didn't have the, other, the things other people had, but he changed the world by dying. 2,000 years, and his legacy is still strong. Half the world blesses in his name, half the world curses in his name. There's something about that name. There's something about this Jesus. Who is Jesus? This becomes the ultimate universal question. Those major existential questions, because who is Jesus? The answer to that, everything else depends on it. If Jesus was just a prophet or a good man or if he was something even worse, then we could just kind of take it with a grain of salt. But if Jesus is the Lord of all and he rose from the dead, that changes everything. That, Because think about this. Jesus talked about the Old Testament. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus preached about there being one God. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. If anyone has seen me, they have seen the Father. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He made these grand claims about himself, but not only did he make the claims, he backed them up. He raised from the dead. He raised from the dead. And so he sets himself apart from any other human leader, even any other religious leader. Muhammad does not belong at the same table as Jesus. None of these other prophets and teachers belong at the same table as Jesus. It's like comparing the sun to a, a flashlight with no batteries in it. No great human leader, no George Washington compares to Jesus. If he raised from the dead, everything changes. And, and, and I want to give you just a, a few nuggets to help you out. 14 evidences of the resurrection. I'm, I want to give these quickly, quickly, just to whet your appetite, just to Verify, this is trustworthy. First is Jesus' existence. I've stated that he is a verifiable historical figure. Christian and non-Christians agree. He was a real living, breathing person. Second was his death. The most popular counter to the resurrection in non-Christian heretical beliefs is to deny that Jesus died on the cross. This is the position of Islam. However, historians regard the death of Jesus by crucifixion as, as ordered by Pontius Pilate to be as historically certain as any other fact of iniquity. So Jesus' life, Jesus' death are historical facts as, as well as anything else we know. Crucified Messiah. That's the third thing. He was a crucified Messiah. Crucifixion was a horrible, 
shameful way to die, so much that it would never have occurred to anyone in the first century to invent a story about a crucified man as the divine savior and king of the world. Something extreme and dramatic must have happened to lead people to such an idea, something like his rising from the dead. Everybody with me here? Who would want to follow a crucified man unless he was the risen Messiah? Number four, Joseph's tomb. All four Gospels agree that Jesus' body had been buried in the rock tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Jewish High Council. This is unlikely to be Christian fiction. The accusation lodged against Christians is that they made up stuff as they went along to, uh, uh, to, to support this so-called myth. It is unlikely to be a fiction because Christians blamed the Sanhedrin for their role in having Jesus executed. Number five, women witnesses. The four Gospels agree that the first persons at the tomb were women. The first witnesses to the resurrection were women. The first evangelists were women. Hallelujah. But in the Jewish world and in the matriarchal world of that day, a woman's testimony was not that well supported. So if you want to get something going and if you want to make something up, you want male witnesses. We had people who were at the bottom rung of the social ladder, such as Mary Magdalene, a former prostitute and demon-possessed woman. And so, again, highly unlikely that women witnesses. Number six, ancient theories. The earliest non-Christian explanations for the origin of resurrection belief mentioned in John and Matthew were that the body was stolen from the tomb, either moved to a burial pl another burial place or stolen to fake the resurrection. These explanations conceded three facts. Jesus died, his body was buried in Joseph's tomb, and the tomb was later found empty. And, and the tomb was found empty. We have not found uh, Jesus' body to this day. And even a famous Hollywood director, James Cameron, you know, he set out to do that, was not successful. People are looking for the bones of Jesus. We could find the bones of virtually anybody else. We could find Krishna's bones. We could find uh, um, other people's bones. But Jesus has not been found. So really, even in their story, they don't have the full answer, and they're helping support, yes, the tomb is empty. Thank you for acknowledging that. Number seven, the tomb was guarded. Critics routinely dismiss Matthew's story about the guards being bribed to say that they fell asleep, giving the disciples opportunity to steal the body. But Matthew would have no reason to make up the story about the guards being bribed except to counter the story of the guards saying they fell asleep. Either way, the guards were there. The body had been in the tomb, and the tomb had been guarded, and the body was no longer there. So the tomb was guarded, and for a, um, for a Roman soldier to fall asleep at their post would have meant their death. So obviously there had to be some sort of conspiracy. Number eight, Paul and Luke's independent accounts. Paul lists resurrection witnesses in 1 Corinthians 5, 5 through 7, coincides with Luke's account at several points, but in wording and what is included in Luke's account is clearly independent of Paul. For example, Paul calls Peter by his Aramaic nickname Cephas, not Simon or Peter. He refers to the 12, Luke to the 11. Luke does not mention the appearances to James or the 500. Thus, Paul and Luke give us independent accounts of the appearances they both mention. Why is that important? Because if Paul and Luke and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all were singing the same song and saying exactly the same thing in a courtroom, that would be considered a conspiracy. They probably got together at some point to form a story 
to where they're all saying the same thing. The fact that there are minor differences does not hurt the resurrection testimony, but helps the resurrection testimony. Number nine, Clopas and that other guy. These were the men that were on the road to Emmaus. That's in Luke 24. Luke gives the name of one of the two men uh, who saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus, but not the name of the other man. If he was making up names, he would presumably have given both men names. The fact that he identifies only one of the two men by name is the best explained by the man Clopas as, as a source of Luke's account. In short, it, this, this fact is evidence that the account came from an eyewitness. So again, if we're making this up, we might as well, you know, Clopas and Jeremy, Clopas and Bill, Clopas and Sid, it wouldn't matter, right? We're just making stuff up as we go along. Okay, number 10, his brother James, who wrote James. And he was an unbeliever during the time of Jesus. You read about it in John chapter 7. He is a doubter. He is a naysayer. He does not believe Jesus in the, as the Messiah. But when Jesus resurrects, he goes on to worship his older brother. How about that? Now, I wish my brother would treat me with more respect. Okay. But he becomes like a pillar in the early church. He, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, wrote the book of James. And so he was highly reputed. As, as a major figure in the early church who preached a resurrected Savior who is his own brother. Number 11, John's eyewitness account. The author of the Gospel of John emphatically states that he was an eyewitness of Jesus' death, of the empty tomb, and of the resurrection appearances. These verses, if you're taking notes, are found in John 19, 32 through 35, John uh, chapter 20, verses 2 through 9, 21, verse 7, and verses 20 to 25 of chapter 21. Either he sincerely had these experiences or he was lying. Appeals to legend or myth are out of question here. Number 12 was ancient skepticism. Luke reports the skepticism of the men disciples the morning the tomb was found empty. And John reports Thomas's skepticism about Jesus' resurrection. These accounts demonstrate that the perception of ancient people as gullible hayseeds who would believe in any miracle story is a modern prejudicial stereotype. Number 13, Paul's conversion. Paul was a notorious persecutor of early Christians prior to his becoming an apostle. His explanation that Christ appeared to him and called him to faith in the apostolic ministry is only plausible is the only plausible of explanation for his 180 degree change. Moreover, Paul's experience was entirely independent of the experience of other apostles. And then number 14, Paul's Gentile mission. Paul's encounter with the risen Jesus did not result merely in him accepting Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Instead, he saw himself, a trained and zealous Pharisee, as commissioned by Jesus to take the good news of the Messiah to the uncircumcised Gentiles. The fact that Paul embraced such a calling against his former passionate beliefs and training makes any appeal to hallucination or delusion implausible. Those are 14 points to the resurrection. If Jesus raised from the dead, that's endgame. If Jesus raised from the dead, that proves his divinity. If Jesus raised from the dead, then we must listen to his teachings. It's not take it or leave it. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, Jesus, you're all right, but, you know, maybe next month. It's, it's not like that. If Jesus is raised from the dead, he's the only game in town. And that's a realization I came to when I first became a Christian. Oh, man, Jesus is real. And, and I knew my life had to change. And so that becomes the ultimate existential because Jesus uh, the ultimate universal, rather, the ultimate question, who is Jesus? Now turn to John 1 in your Bibles. I'll give you 
a, an answer to that question, who is Jesus? John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Everything in, in that general revelation, the created world, and in our hearts. You know, the Bible says that God's law is written on our hearts and that eternity is in our hearts. Everything about the human condition, everything about the universe, and then the very specific messages of the Bible itself in, in that special revelation. It tells us that there is a brilliant God, a loving God, and a communicating God. And there's something that God wants us each to know. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus was and is the Word. That's an English word, but it's translated from the Greek language. The word is logos. Jesus is the logos. That word means communication, transmission, message. Jesus is the ultimate message of God to mankind. He's the ultimate expression of the heart of God. As it says, he gives light to men. He gives us the ability to love and to reason and to see this world the way it is and to reach out to God the way that we as humans are capable of doing. He is the light of the world, and he says those who follow him will not walk in darkness. Jesus is God's message to the human race. He says, this is my heart. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is the one I want you to follow. And in verse 14 of that chapter, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. If we could all stand. Who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hallelujah. I just want us to meditate on that question. Who is Jesus? Amen. Who is Jesus? We're reading that he is the Logos. We're reading that he is the communication of God's very heart. Another place says he is the image of the invisible God. And another place says he is the exact representation of his being and the radiance of his glory. And through, and through him all things were made and have their being and are sustained. Jesus, we thank you, Lord. You give us light. You may be denying Jesus right now. But even if you're doing that, you're denying it with the mind he gave you. You're thinking the thoughts you're thinking now with the light he gave you. Hallelujah. Jesus, we want to know you. Jesus, if you are who this Bible says you are, speak to our hearts. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. Let's give it up for Pastor Jared. Amen. We are going to now make time to pray and seek God's face. And then afterwards, we are going to answer questions 
for you guys. Would you please move this for me quickly? I want all of our altar workers to come. Band, would you come, please? Pastor Jared, great job. Great job. He's going to be around if you have questions. But more importantly, he's going to be right up here if you want to pray and get to know Jesus. So here's going to be the altar call. We're going to sing an old school song, Jesus, Holy and Anointed One. And as we worship Jesus today, if you want to get to know him more, we want you to come down and find somebody to pray with. If you want to confess the junk in your trunk and get it out and live for God, come on. But if you're honestly going to say, no, I know Jesus, and I'm going to live for Jesus, then we want you to worship with us today. And we want you to start off this conference just focusing on him. We're not products of evolution. We're products of God. We're not machines. We're his children. And our hearts burn within us, don't they? When we hear about God, we hear about love, our hearts burn within us. When we hold our children, when we're in our parents' arms as children, wherever we are, we know there's something greater. How many have ever been in love before? You know there's something greater. Is there any coincidence that God said it was all about love? How many know love is the greatest thing? Love, right? Don't you love love? Is it any coincidence that God said it's all about love? It's not all about fighting. How many here like to fight? Let's be honest. Do you like to fight? No. How many like to be angry? How many like to cuss? How many like the turmoil? No. That would be if we were animals, but we love love. And so we're going to love on God today. And no matter where you're at, God wants to love on you. So we're going to sing this song. I'm going to wait for the words to get up. But right now as we're waiting, would you just close your eyes and just ask Jesus into your heart today if you haven't. All you have to do is say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. If you know Jesus, just raise up your hands and tell him you love him right now in your own words. Come on, before we start the karaoke song, in your own words, Jesus, I love you. I thank you for raising from the dead. I thank you for saving me. I thank you for loving me. Come on, thank him for five things in your life right now. That resurrection power means you're whole, means you're healed, means you're not alone, means you'll never face something by yourself. It means that God is on your side. Jesus, we love you. The truth is Jesus. The truth is grounded in Jesus. The truth is expressed in Jesus. The truth finds its meaning in Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It's always going to be about Jesus. Jesus completes us. Jesus fills us. Jesus heals us. Jesus teaches us. Jesus corrects us and guides us and loves us. Jesus is our best friend. Jesus is our comforter. He is our Savior. He is the Lamb of God slain for our sins. He is the first. He's the last. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. There's nobody like Jesus. Come on, church. We should have some things to be thankful for. There's nobody like Jesus. Right now, in your own words, there's nobody like Jesus. There is nobody in the heavens or on the earth like Jesus. Adam, come on, sing it. The words will come up in a minute. If you know it, sing it with us. If not, just come on. We're going to pray for you. If you need prayer, come on to the front no matter what you're going through. Come, we'll pray for you now. And if you want to worship, worship with us now. Jesus, come on. Yes, God. It's all about 
about you. It's all about Jesus. Sing it again, Jesus. Jesus. Say his name, Jesus. Risen and exalted one. Risen and exalted one. Jesus. Come on. Your name is like honey. Your name is like honey. On my lips. Your spirit. I love you. Jesus, I love you. Come on, your name is like honey. Sing it out. Your name is like your honey. Name is like honey. Jesus. Your spirit is like water to my soul. Your word Thank you, is God. Come on. From the beginning, Jesus, holy and anointed one. If you need prayer, come on. If you need prayer for anything, you should come. You should come right now. If you need prayer, don't be embarrassed. Ask someone to come with you for anything between you and God. Don't miss this opportunity. But those who are worshiping, come on, you know God is real. Let's keep worshiping Him together. Jesus, let's sing out his name. Jesus. Jesus. Risen and exalted one. Thank you, God. Let's just sing that softly. Come on, anybody love Jesus here? Jesus, I love Come on, just sing it out if you need prayer. Come on up. Wait in line. Don't be in a hurry. Jesus, I love Come on, but those who are worshiping, touch his heart. Come on, touch the heart of Jesus today. You know that he loves you by dying for you. Can you love him with your worship right now? Come on, is he worthy? Is he worthy of your worship? Is he worthy of your praise? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? 
Come on, somebody say, I love you. I love you. We love him because he first loved us. what you want to sing sing it brother come on you love me Jesus come on sing it so you can hear it tonight believe it Jesus Jesus you love me you love one more time come on God loves you no matter what you've been through what you've done what you know what you don't know come on believe it Amen. Just as the band plays, you can keep loving on them. Prayer workers, keep praying. We're going to sing another song. He is jealous for me. He, we're going to sing that song that some of you fell in love with years ago. But we're going to sing it again today. And I hope you get a fresh revelation of it. That his grace is like an ocean. That his love is so great. And he's jealous for us. The reason why you are not happy in sin if you could look up at me, if you're not in the attitude of prayer, just look up at me, those who are worshiping, please. The reason why sin does not fulfill your life is because God designed you for Him. Come on, He made you for glory. Come on, put your hand over your stomach right now and say, He made me for glory. Come on, He didn't make you for the junk of this world. He made you for glory. You were made to walk in the Garden of Eden. You were made to know God as you know yourself. You were meant to see Him face to face. And that's why sin doesn't work out. That's why broken relationships follow sin. That's why depression follows sin. But oh, how He loves us. How He loves us that He doesn't leave us in that place. That He comes and He rescues us. Would you sing this before we dismiss? Oh, how he loves us. Jesus. His love is unimaginable. Prodigal sons and daughters come home. He's not judging you today. All you got to do is believe that and you'll be saved. How 
Do you believe in the love of God? Do you believe it casts out all fear, washes away all sin, makes you white as snow? Jealous for me. Come on, he don't want me flirting with the devil. Woo! His love is powerful, bending. Yes, the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden, come on, God's got a plan right now for somebody. All of a sudden, your problems can disappear. Why? Because God's love is greater. And I realize, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great Come on, sing it one more time. He is jealous for me. And he is jealous for me. Come on, put up Stephanie. I need to hear this today. Come on, some sister needs to let it out. Come on, a woman needs to get her self-esteem today in God. Come on, young ladies, women. You don't need a man. All you need is Jesus. Feel his love across you today. Let him blow over you right now. Woo! over me right now Jesus you're forgiven somebody needs to say that today and believe it I am forgiven my past is behind me yes believe it right now you've got a future in Jesus Woo! come on it's time to drown in Jesus's grace Come on, seek in God's grace this evening. Heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. And my heart turns violently inside of my chest. And I don't have time to make Jesus.
Come on, sing it out. He loves us. Just as the band is playing, if you could begin to make it your way back to your seat and pull out your journal. If anyone's still praying, you can. But we want to end this time just like how we started. And we want to see as God's speaking to our hearts right now. Brother Ish, would you grab that for me, sir? Looking all good. Looking fine, brother. Looking fine. Christina, would you run my journal up here for me, please? We need to believe that God is speaking and giving us answers right now. Every session, I want to stay in tune to the Holy Spirit. And so what I feel we need to do is go back to these journals and see, has anything been answered? Thank you, sir. Maybe something just simple like, you know, maybe you objected about God's love for you. You didn't know that or you, you thought about science or you've heard objections from science and God answered that through Pastor Jared. Come on, look at those notes right now. Come on, it's God speaking. And we're going to give you some time to meditate on the message. And then after we do this, I'm going to let them keep worshiping because I want there to be a transition. Some of you all still want to hang out with Jesus and that's awesome. And then I want to answer some questions for anybody here. I'm just going to take a, a seat on the stool. And if anybody's got questions, I want to make sure Jared and I stay back. After the time, it's going to be like a five-minute transition. So this conference is going to go deep. Oh, he is jealous for me. Come on. His love like a hurricane. I am just write some stuff down. If you ain't got nothing yet, just write down, Jesus loves me. Oh, I'm so high like a kite right now, man. I feel Jesus. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Refill. Jesus. Holy Ghost. Doubts don't mean as much as they used to, do they? His presence fixes stuff. Shh. Come on, some of you just need to take a drink of that sweet presence. Hallelujah. Woo. Some of you may have questions that God won't answer on this earth, you know, that deal with personal situations and why did this person do such and such? God will give you the theological answer. There's bad people because of sin. I mean, that's the simple theological answer, that the world has been cursed and people choose evil over good. But how many just want to get medicated on Jesus right now? It's like the guy who gets shot in the leg on the battlefield. It's like he doesn't have a talk with the medic. Well, explain to me about my artery right now that's gushing out blood. He's like, morphine now! <laughs> better it's like Jesus just fix us but some of you need some answers and you're going to get them the theological ones are all there but I just want to give you that word for some of your personal situations 
you know. I can't tell you why you were born the day you were born to the family you were born to. You know, that just comes down to how God planned out the world. And we're in this place now, and we got a choice between our good and evil. And at any time you ever feel like you're getting picked on, that evil just keeps happening to you, look to Jesus. Jesus didn't hurt anybody. Jesus didn't do anything but love, and they crucified him. So by you going through things like that, you can actually identify more with Jesus than some others may be able to. I'm going to give you three minutes right now. This preacher is going to stop. Just hear what God is saying or just take another drink. And can you just keep singing that because I'm feeling that. Bartender, serve me up another. seconds and then we'll just stand up and we'll move to the next session to the after party or to your your home for the night Jesus amen pastor Lauren would you just come and pray for everyone here we're going to start tomorrow at 10 a.m. You can put up a slide for us, brother, tomorrow. It's 9.30 prayer if you want to come early. 10 o'clock. It's going to be a great session, Pastor Ellie. Truth is true for everyone. And then I have taken almost a lifetime of study for the third session to always be prepared. I am literally going to try to cover every major religion and worldview that there has ever existed upon this planet. No, I'm just kidding. But I will try. But I'm going to do my best, so just pray for me. So tomorrow at 10, would you pray for us? Hallelujah, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth today, God. We thank you that you don't hide it from us, God. You put it in front of us. You give us your word, Lord. We just ask that every heart in this place would be ready to receive tomorrow. I ask you, God, that if there's anybody in this room that still doesn't believe, that they would have their their questions answered tonight. We thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, and we ask you for more, Jesus. We just want more, more revelation, more
more sweet presence, oh God. It's true. You fix us, God. You fix us in your presence, Lord. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. The band's going to worship for five minutes. I'm going to start a Q&A session at 9.30 to go to 10 o'clock. So anything you guys want to stay back and ask for, you can. Or you can be dismissed and call it a night. No condo bondo. God bless you guys. Maybe an uppity happy song or whatever you were feeling. Yeah. All right. We'll see you tomorrow at 10 or in five minutes. You give life. You are love.